Hey, welcome to Current Yield Grants, Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, your host, and with me, as always, is the great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. And also with us, as per usual, is Henry French, who's a sound man, technician, man at the dials. A man who I previously and repeatedly referred to as um, Henry Fox. Which error is grounded in a piece of writing I'm doing for the past couple of years? And uh, Henry Fox is uh, an important character in this narrative, but he's not Henry French. Henry French is Henry French and not Henry Fox. Thank you, Henry, for being with me. And with us today is a guest, and his name is Martin Hale. And Martin Hale is a is a man of considerable parts in the world of finance. He's, of course, a Yale man. Look at him, you know that. Cool out, naturally, distinction. Yes. And he built his career uh, in the venture and private equity worlds. In fact, he helped to start Pequot's venture and private equity business in 1997 that uh, at length became First Marcap, which in turn led to the spin-out of an aspect of the strategy to form what is today Hale Capital Partners, which is a non-traditional evergreen growth equity, non-traditional in that it actually makes money, <laughs> a growth equity fund. And uh, Martin is also a, not the least of his distinctions the past uh, speaker to Grass Conference. We'll get around to that in a moment. So Evan, have you noticed that interest rates are rising? Is this seeming impossibility a fact? Last I checked, yes. And in fact, the Fed's rooting them on. Yeah, I'll leave it to the Fed. You know, the Fed... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, that's the Federal Reserve, um, now is threatening to strafe and bomb the bond market with what the bond market least desires, which is bonds. The, the, the about face has been pretty jarring. Um, last summer, Mary Daly, who's the president of the San Fran uh, Fed, came out and said, we are not thinking about thinking about raising rates. And then just the other day, she said, inflation is worse than unemployment and we're going to hike pretty hard. I'm trying to imagine how inflation is worse than unemployment. Uh, personally, I'd rather have a um, smaller paycheck than none. Well, I think that um, uh, one must think about these things a little more deeply than that, Evan. You're talking about PhDs in economics at the Fed, so she had no doubt has something in her mind. But uh, anyway, it's, ladies and gentlemen, it is good copy at Grant's Interest Rate Observer. We have been on the, um, on the side of higher rates uh, for many years. In fact, I am not going to confess, as I recently confessed to my misapprehension of our sound guy is something entirely different. I'm not going to confess how long and how frequently Grants in the past has declared the end of the bond market, bull uh, bond market that began uh, 41 years ago. I'm not going to go there. Let us say we were early, but um, no sin, right, Martin? Right. Okay. Um, to my right, directly ahead of Evan and uh, to uh, Henry French's left is uh, Martin Hale Jr., who's a Yale man, obviously, with distinction, of course, cum laude, yeah, natch, and um, a former analyst at uh, Broadview International and associate at uh, Geo Capital Partners, but significantly, more importantly for our purposes, the CEO of uh, a non-traditional evergreen growth equity fund that uh, is all about the rehabilitation of disappointing (laughs) technology companies. Um, Martin gave a talk, uh, I think 2019. Did you not at Grants Conference? Yeah. And Evan, you have the you have the uh, the facts and figures on this. Please tell our audience about the triumphant presentation of our guest today, Martin Hale Jr. So, just to give the idea that he gave at the end, it was uh, Avid Technology Inc., which he heavily sandbagged, saying there's 
lots of reasons to hate this business, but there's one to like it, which is that the stock price is down and it looks prospectively cheap. Since our conference in uh, October of 2019, Avid is up, I think, 450%, including reinvested dividends, even though the stock doesn't pay any dividends, <laughs> versus around 50% for the S&P 500, which does pay a dividend, which is a, a heck of an outperformance for a stock that he heavily sandbagged on the stage. Well, just like any good investment idea, it should be one that you're embarrassed to uh, mention, or slightly <laughs> embarrassed, because only then is it probably a good buy. And we have a few of those for uh, the Grant's professional subscribers. <laughs> I'll just say uh, quickly that it's an honor to be here. I see Jim every now and then in Brooklyn Heights. And uh, well, my wife points out the movie stars, I point out Jim to all my friends. It's yeah. really a treat well, to be here. Thank you, Martin. That will be enough of that. Um, hey, I, I um, am uh, requested to say that uh, Martin is not on this podcast to give investment advice. Nothing he says should be construed that way. And if, if Martin, you start to give our listeners any actionable million dollar ideas, I'm just going to cut it right off. I don't. <laughs> right, Henry? It's a good idea, right? Yeah. Um, so, Martin, the, the theme that you sounded in 2019 and I thank Evan for this observation, is ever so timely now. What you said then was that um, you'd be astounded to know just how frequently and how much even the most storied and money-making tech stocks have fallen on their faces. Um, so I, I, I think the way to proceed on this, Martin, is just to, you'd begin to reminding us how cyclical, how violent are the, uh, are the phases of prosperity and despair uh, that uh, the rip through the NASDAQ. Yes, in fact, we've seen something very rare in technology, something mythical, and it's not a unicorn, it's a bear market. The reality is that uh, we've had an understated data set since 1980 that tracks every technology company that's ever existed, and approximately 70% of technology companies will lose 70% or more of their value at any one time in their lives. Wait, wait, wait. Can you say that one more time? 70% of technology companies will lose 70% or more of their value at any one point in their lives. Is that when one owns them? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Uh, unfortunately, often. <laughs> so, uh, but, but the fascinating thing is half go to zero, but one in five to one in 10 recover 10x. And about 3% will be 50x plus winners. And so when you look at the history of technology, everyone wants to be a unicorn. The reality is successful companies are a phoenix with multiple periods of huge gains and huge losses. Well, Martin, if, if I could ask you again to, um, uh, to repeat the mathematics of the numbers that come back from the dead and generate returns of 20 and 50 times. What What is the incidence of that? Well, just on the 10x side, one in five to one in 10, okay. depending on when you do the study. And uh, for a 50x plus recovery, about 3%. Now, doesn't that suggests that uh, a diversified portfolio of tech companies held throughout all cycles is going to perform because that to one to 50 shot, the one to 20, the more frequent one to 10 is going to compensate for the zeros and then some. Or is that not quite the mathematics? It, it could be. Uh, uh, I think a more interesting question is why winners win and why losers lose. So one could conceivably increase the odds dramatically. Well, but Oh, by not buying the ones that stay at zero. <laughs> well, by by buying the ones that meet the success factors. The fact is half going to zero is not so great no matter how many winners <laughs> you have. In other words, uh -huh. you'd have to have be a real glutton for punishment to tolerate such huge drawdowns. Yeah. And ideally, what one would do is avoid the companies that exhibit the critical failure factors and try to invest in the companies that exhibit 
the critical right. success factors. So that begs the question, what are the critical failure factors? As um, for, for the liberal arts majors in the audience who read uh, Anna Karenina, the line that all happy families are alike and all unhappy families are unhappy in dozens of different ways applies. There are many paths to failure and a much more narrow aperture for success. So the paths to failure can include poor management, uh, huge overvaluation. Uh, first mover, first loser is another pattern. Think of uh, Ask Jeeves or Yahoo. Uh, or so, Blackberry. Exactly. So there are all sorts of different ways to fail. Another wonderful thing in t about technology is that people actually aren't able to spell. Most CEOs don't understand ROIC. And, and so it's really, if you actually screen in Edgar for the number of comp plans that feature return on invested capital, you come up with about 12 to 15, and they're all contract manufacturers. Have you run the same search to see how many management teams talk about adjusted earnings? Everyone. What, I don't know what I don't know what gap EPS is these days. Everything's adjusted. Martin, I have in front of me a page on a presentation you have shared with us, and the headline is "Why do so many company Why do so many tech stocks tank?" And uh, uh, the factors enumerated, some of you just mentioned, uh, are uh, poor governance, uh, uh, poor leadership, disruption, lack of product management, bad business models, the swing of expectations. But I would have supposed much higher on this list, deserving a category of its own, is uh, is the phenomenon of creative destruction. It seems to me that tech companies are forever um, at risk of something better. So, so uh, intense, so violent is this gale of innovation, of invention and imagination that uh, you'd be hard-pressed to, to create a business that survives the next thing that somebody besides you thought of. Absolutely. The history of technology is the history of disruption. Think of companies like all the mini computer companies, Digital Equipment Corp, all the all the all the companies long gone. It it is it is a continual period of disruption. And that's why tech is actually all product cycles. And it's another reason why when we look at these companies in in the in the orphan status or in the graveyard, it's really new teams and new product cycles. And in a way, one has to realize that tech turnarounds don't turn. They're often restarts driven by new teams and new product cycles. Before we get into that, I want to uh, share with the with the Grant's um, current yield audience. I told uh, Evan the story about uh, a conversation I had last night with a very knowledgeable one-time employee of uh, Walmart. And I said to uh, this fellow, um, youthful 35 or so, I said, uh, you know, I, businesses uh, don't last forever. You know, look at Montgomery Ward. And he said, huh? What? I said, Montgomery Ward. Monkey Ward, they used to call it on Wall Street. Montgomery Ward. It's like Sears. And he said, it didn't, it didn't help. <laughs> he had never, he had never, and this made a very successful career uh, at, um, uh, at Walmart. And this, this, this speaks to the evanescence and the uh, transitoriness, I think, the Fed might have, of, um, of even the most uh, seemingly uh, enduring and permanent there's no such thing as permanent business models, are there? No. And in fact, we will have, like our past podcast and the conference, a link to a deck, either on the Grants website or our Twitter account at, at Hale Funds of, these, of some slides that will allow people to see some of this data. But in those slides, you'll see a list of the graveyard of the clinkers of the past and the clinkers of today. But for the past, you may recall CMG adventures or worldcom or or many other giant companies of the day webvan in the, in the bubble the fact is many investors today were not al alive 
astonishingly enough, in the bubbles. They don't know exactly how this can work out. Many investors weren't alive then, and most investors seem to have cut their teeth in the last decade where we had exactly one recession. It was the shortest and sharpest in the history of the U.S. It was over in two months, and valuations rocketed uh, pretty quickly from their lows in uh, that March. How is technology valued today? Like, how does kind of the world look relative to, like, you know, past periods of excess, like the dot-com era, the the global financial crisis? That's a good question. The... um, Let's first start by measuring the peak from the from 2021 versus the peak in March of 2000. And astonishingly, because I grants gave me the chance to run this data uh, or the opportunity, rather, the kick in the pants to do it. Overall, the tech stocks were nine percent higher at peak valuation than in March of 2000, which I think is not well understood or 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 known. Now, when was this? Is this in, in which which moment in time did we register higher valuations than at the peak of the bubble? Uh, I I chose to run my screen on July 1st, 2021. Okay. Now that may not have uh, picked off the, the the peak, but it seemed as mm-hmm. good a proxy as any. Um, now, it's, it gets more interesting when you compare the valuations by decile. Certain deciles, the lower deciles, the smaller public companies were way more expensive than they were at the peak of the internet bubble. Decile uh, one and two, the smallest 20%, were approximately 100% more expensive in this cycle than the last cycle. The, the highest deciles, decile 10, was a little bit cheaper, reflecting the durability of companies like Amazon and Microsoft versus a Cisco at that time or Lucent. But the reality is they were... They were uh, Overall, more expensive, and well, we have had quite a shellacking, and that shellacking, uh, as it measured as of 328 2022, was uh, 33% overall, 33% decline. But depending on deciles, some deciles are down as much as 51%. That sounds like a lot, and it may sound like a great buying opportunity, but we have to remember if stocks retrace the pattern of the prior bubble bust where the market bottomed in Q3 of 2002 for those who weren't living through it, uh, we would still have a 69% further to fall overall. And so we're at a fascinating time. Yes, there may be opportunities, but we also have to be very careful. In addition to that kind of top-down look, I mean, it seems like there's a couple of differences between this market and the previous market. One being dot-com companies overall were smaller, both in terms of revenue, the losses that they made relative to their revenue, and also their market cap. Whereas today, like a lot of the tech concerns are, you know, 10, 20, 40, 50 billion dollar companies, they're hemorrhaging cash at a much higher rate. So their distance to just to break even is much higher, assuming that, you know, demand holds up. Uh, How does that kind of factor into how you think about the current tech market versus, you know, the previous bubble? I argue that bubbles deflate the same way everywhere. And so, well, there may be certain differences. I think many of the myths were the same. The myth that these tech companies are immune to the cycle. The myth that this is a going to be a continual well of prosperity and that this time it's different. And so I'd, I'd argue that probably more things are similar than different to the last cycle. And we will have a similar unwinding. Perhaps it is unwinding faster if you just overlay the charts, but we're still unwinding. And I, I just don't expect it to be done. Uh, for the philosophers out there, Boethius often said, cruel fate by all abhorred savage poison adds the sword. And I'd expect that uh, the sword follows the poison with, with, with increasing rates in a recession. What uh, do you make of the, uh, of the size and the vaunted uh, 
uh, value of the business models of the so-called fangs. That wasn't exactly a feature of the 2000 episode. These are companies, the new fangs, the new apples and like, are companies meant to be uh, more durable, uh, of uh, uh, terrific uh, financial strength, uh, very lightly leveraged and, uh, and uh, yeah, undisruptible. Well, it's, it's probably true that Decile 10, the largest public companies in technology, are better bets this time around than Cisco and Lucent last time around. But at, at the same time, uh, it's just so hard to know what impact inflation has on and a recession has on valuations overall and on consumer spending. The fact is, I don't know. I do think many of the lower decile companies are, are in a different class where they could have far bigger troughs. You know, there's something you said uh, early on in this podcast, Martin, uh, I think deserves repetition. And that is that um, uh, the best ideas, best ideas, the ones you cannot bring yourself to mention because either they have become so discredited or one sponsorship of them, one's um, a support of those ideas publicly um, talking them up has become so discredited that uh, it's an embarrassment. Yes. Right. And um, so... What is what? Are, what's the psychological element of a of a proper bottom in, in technology? What 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 state of mind is the market in? What um, can you bear to remember? Well, yes, usually it's buying something and having it lose another fifty percent of its value. In other words, bottoms are made from the. Uh, I hate to say it; it's rather crude for this podcast, but from the enema. I, <clears throat> Henry, <laughs> you, you can reconsider that. Uh, well, a one dollar stock. Um, looks cheap, but at 50 cents, it's uh, still down a half, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, well, I, the reality is bottoms are made in periods of complete disgust and uh, revulsion. Revulsion, yes. What are you waiting for in terms of seeing signs of revulsion before you want to get more aggressive? I mean, we still see kind of like the avatars of the cycle, like the Kathy Woods still going on CNBC. Sure, she's down, but she's, I think, raised money this year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so what, what are the signs of kind of ultimate revulsion that where you would be more certain that we've actually reached a bottom or at least getting nearer to a bottom? Well, I, I think of it less in the abstract and more in the success factors that I think are fairly detailed and company specific. So um, in other words, it's the fact is many some companies may be viable today, many may not be. And what I would generally want to see is uh, companies getting bottom line viable. And what, what do you mean by viable? Bottom line, is that just cash, that At least cash flow break even. And so what, what we have, we have companies like um, Oscar or Hippo that have just been burning so much cash. And yes, they're trading at, let's say, 0.5 times revenue down 85% for an Oscar, let's say. Um, but the reality is uh, the business model has to get viable before it's viable. And usually the team that brings you down is unable to do that. Usually it takes a new management team. And so the, the typical pattern is the guys who bring you down don't bring you back. New CEO is brought in and does the hard work of getting the company viable in the bottom line, which is very difficult because it's cultural. And that means you have to clean out a lot of the dead wood. You have to narrow the focus dramatically. And the reality is it's much harder than it looks. Go about identifying companies that are candidates for this kind of uh, deep cleaning and transformation. And part two, where do you find the new CEOs? Well, the first thing I like to see is a, a loss rate above 80% typically, because in a way- if The, the it, stock price down 80%. Yes. It, it, if your company is a drunk, that drunk has to hit bottom because they won't change otherwise. And so I like to see some large loss rates in the stock price and typically, although not always, a new CEO. 
throw the bums out, and then you have the stage set for a reset. But then the question is, will that team embrace bottom line viability? When that happens, when you can see a real turning point coming in cash flow from losses to break even, generally that's the inflection point we love to see. Now, how many companies now answer that description? How many are down 80%? How many um, despairing of what they have done have resolved to do better and brought in a new CEO? Does, does that group of companies even exist? It's starting. But to answer your first question, we do have an astonishingly large number of 80% plus decliners from the peak. At this point, I, I started it for the slide deck at Grants. And then uh, I after a week of, of going through them, I'd probably only... <laughs> covered about 20 percent. Well, are there 50 of these companies that are down 80 percent? I would guess uh, about 300. Out of how many in the universe? Probably. Uh, this, now, this is a this is a tough one to hazard a guess on. I, I should be dealing with with uh, data in front of me. I think our screen was actually 70 percent. We'd easily have 100 out of a universe of 1,200. And because you said that so often these turnarounds are reinventions, I mean, these are product cycles and oftentimes to get out of the bottom, you need a new CEO with a focus on profitability who has a new viable product that people crave or want to buy. And that turns it around. To what extent when you're making these bets, are you betting on kind of the jockey or the horse? Like if, if it requires a new CEO, do you look more at his track record? Or do you look at kind of like the IP and kind of the assets the company has? Our favorite pattern is the following. A really accomplished CEO joins a down and out company and realizes he or she has made the greatest mistake of his or her life, but their pride and their ego won't let them quit. And then they get to work making an okay business, a much better business. We did put a partial clinker list together. And I think there's about 30 names of Bark, Limeade, Robinhood, Fastly, Rent the Runways, Tencent Music. I mean, there are many, many companies that were darlings in yesterday, 2021. <laughs> And I'm not even including the the mem stocks or meme stocks like, um, you know, like, oh, I don't know, all those crazy companies like Blink Charging or AMC. Um, tell us about Amazon, which certainly answers the, uh, the feature of uh, a tech stock losing a lot of money. I think the stocks are down, as I see here in your material, it's down at 1.90%. Uh, but uh, famously, it did not jettison its CEO. And uh, is Amazon the exception that proves the rule? Tell us about the... Amazon is a case study in the cyclicality of tech stocks and in the, and the extraordinary opportunities available for the ones that do come back from the dead. Amazon is as dangerous as Tesla. A lot of CEOs think they can be like Tesla and use it to justify all sorts of terrible behavior. But um, in, in a way, Amazon is one of the very rare companies that had this remarkable recovery with the same CEO. That can happen. It tends to happen in periods of bubble implosions. Uh, and the, the odds are just much rarer, about, probably about one in a thousand versus one in eight. In other words, it's, it's long odds, but when it works, it works really well. Amazon um, peaked in Q4 of 1999, and this is all pre all the splits at what was then $100 a share and, and bottomed uh, in, in, I believe, in the single digits. Uh, as a 90% loser, and then proceeded to have a gigantic run of about a, a, a thousand X gain, followed by another 57% loss, uh, followed by a 300% gain, followed by a 65% loss, and eventually 10 years later, recouped its prior high. So it was, uh, you had to wait 10 years. It reminds me of the old story about for, for the older people in the room, RCA, where 
a woman, I think uh, a woman came into the her broker's office in 1953 and said, I'm selling RCA. I finally broke even. And of course, it had peaked in 1929. That's yeah, a rate, rate of O story. <laughs> yes. Late, rate, rate of o. You know, I'm, I'm looking again at um, some of the material you generously brought to our podcast. And uh, one of the uh, features of uh, uh, the characterized the tanking tech stock is what you uh, denote here, the Narcissus syndrome. There's a, a CEO who wants to be admired. I'm trying to think, if there are any CEOs in the world that answer the description of narcissistic, I, I think, think they're think, humble to a core. Can you think of any, Evan? <laughs> well, I, I heard about this guy who just got a board seat on Twitter. But aside from that, I, I think most CEOs are humble, yeah. have low pay. They they care about the environment. I mean, they, they certainly publish a lot about ESG. Just like uh, the Fed, humble and nimble. <laughs> well, the, the interesting exercise we've been on for now 10 years, uh, in part propelled by my identical twin brother, is interviewing. Boy, there are two Marty Hales. There are indeed. It's quite freaky. Uh, <laughs> but um, we've interviewed all these people we admire across various roles: CEOs, CFOs. And the question is, what common behaviors do they do they have? And can we then use that to pick better management and to recruit better management? And one of the questions we love asking is, would you rather be admired or successful? And if someone answers admired, we generally will stay away. That was a Bill Gross question, and and, and uh, he when people would come to work at Pimco, he said, "You want to be famous, or do you want to be rich?" And he, Gross, consisted that he wanted to be famous. Yes, he just I, I just heard that on a podcast actually that he and yeah. he did achieve fame. Yeah, so he he was a twofer. <laughs> In terms of the tech cycle, um, I, I think this current cycle is difficult for a couple of reasons. One. Following the the lockdowns, consumers purchased a lot more durable goods and especially a lot more tech, whether it's laptops, computers, PCs. And we had this huge upgrade cycle. In the last week, we've seen things like um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corp., which makes most of the microchips in the world, come out and say they're seeing weaker demand. There was an article in the Nikkei um, quoting a lot of Apple suppliers saying they're seeing a big fall off in the new iPhones that were just released a week or two ago, which is a little bit unusual. And at the same time, bubblish markets kind of create their own like momentum. I mean, uh, Gail Braith talked about the bezel, which is kind of like the difference between where assets are valued and where what they're truly worth. And we saw companies like Palantir, which makes software products and services, actually investing in early startups in exchange for those startups to buy its software. So in a sense, it was generating activity, but it was generating activity with loss-making companies who otherwise wouldn't be able to buy its services. And I, I know this happens in kind of every cycle, but part of the question of what is the enterprise value to revenue really does relate to what the heck is revenue? And it seems like that's uh, a little bit of a question at the moment. Well, uh, yes, the the tech cycle, well, the semi-cycle has forever been one of double and triple ordering at tops. And uh, we've certainly been through a period where there must be a lot of that having gone on because the part shortages have been so extreme. So it would naturally one would expect a hangover. And then, uh, but with Palantir, the fascinating point is we do, we do tons of government services work. And the fact is Palantir is uh, is primarily a services business trading at a software multiple. It's really a head scratcher. But that, that seems also common of many bull markets, but we can also name a lot of other companies like Affirm, which is in your tech rec thing. It's a consumer lending company that trades at the multiple of a tech stock, even after its recent correction. And there's a number of other companies that for all intents and purposes seem like very old economy stocks dressed up with like a tech wrapper. That was uh, one of the challenges of 
going through this list, it was uh, I had to edit out a lot of companies that weren't actually tech companies that had lost a lot of value, but were valued like them, like the Honest Company, for example. It's actually <laughs> probably a pretty good company, and it's down 80 plus what, percent. What kind of a name is that? Can't be a Wall Street firm. Okay? It is a consumer products company by some uh, movie star. Uh, Jessica Alba, um, its claim to fame was about five or six years ago, it made suntan lotion without any suntan lotion in it, and a lot of its customers got burned. Okay, Evan. Yeah. Um, hey, um, Martin, you know, one of the, I think one of the um, features of a successful investor is, uh, is to have a lively imagination and to conceive the impossible, right? To conceive things that uh, uh, are just simply unthinkable. Um, and the better of those successful investors don't imagine the impossible before it's about to happen. They, they, don't, they don't give like a 10-year lead time. They kind of, at, at a peak or a bottom, they say, what, what could happen to shatter commonly held thought patterns and expectations. And I'm going to ask you, and this is the risk of bringing someone personally into this discussion, rather objective and clinical. In the case of, um, of Elon Musk, what is the impossible outcome? Here is one of the most phenomenally successful, storied, uh, um, uh, magnetic, uh, rich people uh, in the world, and, and, and indeed the solar system, now he's venturing beyond I think he is the wealthiest person on the planet, according to some surveys. All right. Is it possible that Elon Musk is going to die poor? <laughs> Certainly. We often talk about imagination being a key for, for great investors. I think uh, I'm obviously in no, no position to really judge, but I, I do know that if I did what he has done with the SEC, uh, I would probably be in jail. <laughs> it, it does not seem so like he, a fair you, you, system. You, 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 could, you could die uh, <laughs> Rich, but incarcerated. Well, I, I would not be, uh, I would be more respectful to our regulators, personally. I, I think it's playing with fire to be to be thumbing one's nose at the SEC. But we all in this investment business are far more cautious, right? We've all seen people get on the wrong side of the law and, and never invest again. So I, I would worry about, my imagination uh, lights up about the whole Twitter thing of, of not disclosing his stake when he surpassed uh, the 5%. 5%, 5%. Yes. Then also, I think, signaling that he was going to create another network to drive the price down. I just, I, again, I'm not one to judge. I'm out of my depth. But I just I just know that it seems like the same rules don't apply to everyone. And they should in the instance of regulation. Is humility a bear market concept? I mean, nobody really learns humility when stock prices just go up on every announcement of a stock split. I'd argue that our best leaders are, are humble leaders and that there is a servant mentality and a followership that, that some excellent CEOs have. So yes, well, among investors and speculators, uh, it is probably true that um, the old saying is correct, never confuse brains with a bull yeah. market. Or with very, very, very low interest rates. Yes, exactly. Everything is, is th that's another, I think, misconception in a way. Everyone thinks that real estate will be safe through a period of inflation. But the reality is everything is valued off of cap rates. And if your cap rates double, your asset loses half its value. And woe to those who are levered in that period. There's been a lot of talk about um, tech being very interest rate sensitive because so many tech names are unprofitable today. And the stream of earnings that people value them off of are very long term. Hence, a change in the discount rate causes those long-term cash flows to be more or less valuable. Do you buy that argument? And do you think if rates keep rising, we're going to see a harder, sharper sell-off in tech? It would seem common sense across not just tech, but what about the contemporary art world, which is uh, where, where valuations have been ludicrous, or venture, which is uh, which makes public markets seem astonishingly inexpensive, <laughs> or, or crypto. Certainly. Do you have any thoughts on uh, on crypto survivorship, Chris? Uh, crypto drawdowns, crypto anything in the model of your tech world? My 
again, I'm no authority on crypto. My general view is that it is the next great platform, much like the cell phone, and that we need to be open-minded to innovation that we have not even conceived of. That said, I have no idea how many things are valued in that world, and it would not surprise me to see a great amount of bloodletting. I think the analogy the analogy I think of is, is um, dot-com stocks in 2000. Sure enough, um, most went under, like pets.com, but the internet wound up to be incredibly powerful. And I think of the same thing in crypto. We will probably see many of these companies die, but the platform itself will thrive and, and we'll see innovation in ways we haven't imagined. No flash of genius there, but uh, I remain open-minded to it. And uh, it, and certainly, as we talked about imagination, we can imagine Bitco models. Bitcoin or gold for you? Well, this raises a very uh, sensitive topic, Jim, because I'm, I'm hardly God's gift to uh, uh, gold investors. And I and uh, we did some of that earlier in our fund. And, and I regret it. I would like to do a podcast on everything one should avoid in gold miners. So, uh, but, but personally speaking, yes, I, I own a lot of gold and I would prefer to own that over Bitcoin. That's just me. You wouldn't expect someone who is value, who has a value orientation to not like yeah. gold. So I was telling, I was telling Evan the other day and others who couldn't help but listen in this small office, but uh, Bitcoin reminds me of a little bit of, uh, of Kenny G, you know, the uh, ubiquitous uh, alto and soprano saxophone players, elevator music. I mean, you're walking down the street and you hear this, this meandering, inconclusive saxophones. It's Kenny G. And Kenny G is one of the richest musicians ever. Also, by the way, a scratch golfer, like a pilot. I mean, a formidable person. But all these new jazz musicians get on Kenny G because he's, he's, he's how can he make that much money? Look, he's, and uh, so Branford Marsalis, the brother of Witten, I think a considerable musician in his own right, Branford Marsalis says, you got to leave Kenny G alone. I mean, nobody nobody listens to like uh, John Coltrane or Annette uh, Coleman says, God, I just heard Kenny G. I'm not listening to Train or Annette anymore. I, I got, the, I heard the real thing. So, uh, so, you know, a little bit, so Bitcoin to me is, is kind of Kenny G. It's kind of smooth, it's popular, it's ubiquitous, and gold is like train. It's like Johnny Hartman and uh, Coltrane in uh, My One and Only Love is like what gold is. You can look it up. In Kenny G's favor, I don't think he's ever facilitated the uh, terrorist payments via his CD sales. Right. Although, how else are you going to buy a, <laughs> a Sting <laughs> missile on the dark web except with Bitcoin? Anyway, we're getting a little bit away from the tech stocks. So, Martin, you, you said that... Um, of the universe of tech stocks, approximately 70% over their lifetime are going to fall 70% or more. And of that subset, some small portion are going to have meteoric gains uh, uh, higher. Can one just buy indiscriminately, you know, out of the way tech stocks? Or is this something that needs to be actively managed where you need to actively work with management to address the problems for why the stocks fell down? Is this something that uh, a buy and hold investor can participate in? Or is it ideally a strategy that you think needs active management and somebody kind of cajoling companies to do the right thing after they've nearly been wiped out? It depends on your pain tolerance. My, <laughs> my, my general view has always been to hunt with a rifle rather than a shotgun. That may not always be the best idea. I, I do believe there is probably a programmatic strategy, uh, but, but my own personal risk aversion, loss aversion, uh, means that I'm generally a sniper, using a sniper rifle rather than a shotgun. I do, I do think um, there is some wisdom in that. It's just you, you have to, you'd have to finely tune, I think, the, the hunt. You just can't buy indiscriminately because, again, half going to zero is basically the odds, right? Yeah. 
And, and just in terms of like previous sell-offs, I know you pointed out that we peaked sometime last year. Um, a lot of these tech stocks are down 30% or more. Um, just having been through a lot of tech sell-offs before, like what inning does this feel like in terms of like where things are going and kind of how far along we are in terms of the correction? I don't think it's monolithic. Some stocks that are down 80% plus are probably worth looking hard at. Others uh, are relatively early in the in the in the correction. Um, the median cycle time for for your 80% loss or 70% loss um, is uh, about 18 months. So if we just follow the medians, we would have uh, a good deal more time left. But but again, it's not it's not monolithic. So my uh, I want to tell you a story about my late departed friend Ed Lee who was a broker at uh, Bear Stearns in the 1970s. This was the, in the teeth of the, uh, of the brutal bear market, about uh, 1969 or so to 1975. I think the bottom was in October 74, at which point I believe the Dow was at book value. Certainly the market was littered with dozens and dozens of um, companies selling for less than their net current assets, right? Okay, so Eddie is uh, office mate with a guy, a broker, who has a customer and the customer is most attuned to losses. He has a very sensitive uh, feel for losing money. He doesn't like it. And uh, he doesn't like it a lot when uh, it goes on for three or four or five years. And finally, at the nth time, he asks the broker, when will this turn? The broker says, when will it turn? When you stop asking. Exactly. You raise, Jim, an excellent point, uh, as usual, which is, well, I gave you the median uh, cycle time for loss rates. That is from a data set starting in 1980. <laughs> does, that, does that ring any bells about what, what happened in, around 1980? So we haven't actually lived through, at least in my data set, we, I, I'm not measuring. I got to tell you, 1982, a bunch of us were at, uh, at uh, lunch, I guess, and uh, this was summer, of June of, it was June of 82, my, our second child, Phil, was about to be born. And uh, market was down a lot. And the bottom would prove to be August of 82. And a lot of stocks were, you know, anyway, they exhibited the characteristics of the burnt out shells that you describe. And, but uh, the people who've been around 10 years or so earlier for the uh, late 60s, early 70s said, no, this isn't a bear market. <laughs> this is not it, fellas. You had to be there to understand. Um, so, uh, yeah, these data sets go back. Uh, you often see this in Bloomberg. Bloomberg is a very short historical memory. They'll say, the steepest decline since data started. When was that? 1997. You know? so. Absolutely. In fact, uh, at the Grants Conference in 2019, I had a slide on the Tronics boom in the late 60s and the, its aftermath and companies like Liquid Onyx, which made um, liquid door Oh, locks. what happened to Liquid <laughs> Onyx? <laughs> It was the Tronics boom, and uh, and in fact, so we we have seen this movie many many times before. And in fact, as uh, you may recall, in the aftermath of the internet bubble and 08, many many of the Decile one and Decile two companies are trading it under cash. So I would ex fully expect that we have that uh, happening here, where these companies that are burning money do trade it less than cash. Well, it's something to look forward to. Yes. I always say, Evan, thank you for. As always, we got no choice, right? You work here. Thank you. But thank you nonetheless, Evan, for being here today. And Martin, what a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, Henry, thanks for being here too. And, uh, and we'll do it again. So uh, I am Jim Grant on behalf of uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Subscribe. And the host of Current Yield. We will talk to you soon.